Oh, it's uh, got one minute to go, man. Oh, oh no, just time right. definitely. It is. Okay, we'll, we'll start. Um, welcome to the uh, 20th episode of uh, UK Tech Investment Weekly. Uh, we hold this event every Monday at 12 o'clock UK time. We speak to, we chat with four founders who have raised investment recently. So right now we've got three and hopefully Smile will join us shortly. Uh, usually this is run by me, Stuart and Andrew. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, Andrew is away this week. So uh, just uh, Stuart and I need to uh, cope with uh, asking various questions. Uh, typically we used to split the session into three areas. One, uh, I get the uh, conversation started with uh, looking at the founder story. Uh, Andrew used to come on and uh, discuss the funding story and then uh, Stuart come on at the end uh, discussing the um, growth story or growth aspirations. So today uh, it's just me and Stuart, so we will uh, try to combine and uh, Stuart can pop in a bit later on as well. Um, so Stuart, would you like to introduce yourself before we get going, please? Yeah, certainly. My name's Stuart Tansend, based out of sunny Lancashire. Um, just opportune time in the spinning washing machine in the background. Apologies for that. Um, so I run a consultancy helping B2B startups grow their indirect sales teams, and I am, uh, have some investments in an SMS company and in a podcast data company. Thank you, Stuart. Um, I run an organization called Texter Rate. Uh, we work with early-stage technology companies from pre-product, pre-revenue to all the way up to a million plus revenue. Um, and um, uh, we are into our third year. We, we work with about 25 plus companies, uh, never more than 35. Um, companies join us through a membership plan. We do not take equity. We focus on the product and the commercialization before investment. Uh, to help them, uh, we have uh, built two other products. One is Intelligence. Um, it's a product called D-Lite. We're trying to be a crunch base for the UK. As part of this, we um, run two press release sites, one for investment, one for uh, M&A. And uh, we publish stories every day. So we publish the stories of the four founders we're going to talk to today. And then the clubhouse allows us to have a chat with them, get to know them be better, but also get to, get them to share the stories of how they founded the company and uh, what made them raise investment and, 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 and that journey with everyone in the audience. Um, and in addition to that, we have a, a free talent market for uh, tech startups. Uh, we're building a two-sided volunteer marketplace. So early-stage companies, especially bootstrap companies, now has no excuse. They've got plenty of talent they, they can plug into. And you know, as long as you are good at execution, you can actually move your company forward. Um, so without further ado, we'll, uh, we'll go by how, uh, go on this, you know, with the companies, uh, uh, sorry, the, the founders, how they appear on the mobile app. So I'll go with, uh, I'll ask Ben to share his founder story. Uh, what made you actually set up your talk, uh, and tell us a bit about what you did before, because you have a history of working, creating startups. Ben, it's your turn, man. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Maraj. Um, yeah, very briefly, I don't want to bore anyone with my story, but um, Yoto is my second startup. The first was a digital music B2B company, 
which I founded in 2004, called Seven Digital. We had a, more than a 10-year journey. We were backed by Boulderton Capital VC and subsequently Dolby and Imagination Technologies, amongst others. Um, took the company public in 2014, small IPO on the AIM market. And around the same time, happened to have kids. And that was really the inspiration behind Yoto. Yoto is a, kid, a connected speaker for kids which puts kids in the center of the experience of listening to great audio, music stories, learning, education, and uh, radio and podcasts with no screen. And uh, we are VC-backed. We raised, um, raised a seed round around four and a half million pounds in 2019, and we just closed in January our Series A, $17 million. And we have a very famous investor in Sir Paul McCartney, which we're very excited about. And uh, yeah, all systems go. That's it. So, so Ben, uh, obviously, um, we all, you know, I got, I got grown up kids, so I can't even remember what you felt like when they were young. Um, but uh, how, do you, how do you get somebody like Paul McCartney to back you up? Uh, did you have a relationship before? Or did you get an introduction? Or? No, I don't, I don't tend to hang, hang around with these kind of people. <laughs> but... Um, uh, because uh, because my previous company was in the music industry, we happened to have connection to a guy who went to run his family office, and it was kind of a serendipitous moment where he happened to have a kids' book coming out that same year called Hey Grandude. It's a picture book for kids, and so he was quite interested in the area, and uh, he was also quite keen to keep his grandkids away from screens. So I had to go and do a demo to him in person, which was the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done in my life, um, but quite fun. And, and um, yeah, he, he's actually invested three times now. So he's a great supporter of us. Excellent, excellent. So if I, um, if, if I, if I move to Gareth, uh, Gareth, uh, you run uh, Lemon Edge. Um, so you started with, you know, you got the company name as Blue Water Software. So how did you end up with Lemon Edge? And uh, would you mind introducing yourself and, uh, and explain to us you know, the reasons behind Lemonage, what, what, what problem you're trying to solve. Um, that would be great, great start, Gareth. Sure. Um, so uh, my name is Gareth. Um, I founded Lemonage at the beginning of last year, actually right before the whole world locked down, like the middle of March. Um, but uh, it's really 20 years of working within software uh, in private equity for more large um, enterprise-grade systems for financial institutions um, in four different companies before, two of which I uh, either co-founded or, or built. Um, and uh, it really kind of um, culminated in the last five years. We had a, a joint venture with a large investment firm out in New York, um, which ended up buying us out, um, which led to me uh, starting this company. Um, and we wanted to start with a, a low-code platform um, that kind of works for the whole of financial services. But unlike there's a lot of platforms out there, I get, you know, one of our USBs is this is specifically for financial services. So it has like the, does the back office accounting as a multi-currency, multi-ledger geo and deals with all the complexities on that for large enterprise grade systems. Then on top of it, we built a, a private equity system for managing like LPs, GPs, fund of funds, uh, fund, and, fund admins, managing uh, all of those. Um, systems on top, uh, and we launched that in October. Uh, as to why we came up with Lemon Edge, 
um, I got together at the beginning of last year when I formed this company with one of, one of my friends from university and his background is sales and marketing and FMCG goods. And uh, so he's done that for like the last 20 years while I've been in finance um, and getting together he did an analysis of the market, kind of coming in fresh to it. Uh, all of the competitors, all of the fintech companies have names that are fintech related in our space. So they're like Investran, Efront, um, Allview. They're all kind of like either, you know, fintech finance kind of names or they've got colors and schemes that are gray, blue, black, um, corporate and boring. Um, and looking at all of that online for, as an outsider, you couldn't tell the difference between any single one of those companies. They all said the same, they looked the same, and they sounded the same. Um, and so his marketing experience was us to, you know, do we want to do something similar, come up with a Latin name, or do we try and come up with something completely different, kind of like Apple, that bears no relationship to what we do but stands out, um, and that's what we did. Um, we originally had Lemon Tree, um, but that didn't work globally as a trademark, so we ended up switching slightly to Lemon Edge. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a great brand. Um, but I, sometimes I wonder when a company has a, a registered name and a, and a brand, whether there's, there's some intention to actually launch multiple brands against that company. But uh, yeah, I like the lemon, uh, you know, the lemon yellow. Is, 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 is that color has a specific name or is it just, you know, I'm, I'm a bit colorblind. I see it as yellow, but uh, I think it's... Yeah, no, the Lemon Edge, our, our brand branding is all like yellow and, and white or, or yellow and black, which again was to stand out. Every competitor in our space is like black, blue, gray. So it was all about being memorable and, dif and differentiated. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Gareth. Uh, if I move to Mark... Um, you're running, uh, again, you've got a rocket horse, you're running, your trading name is Quizbit. Uh, tell us about that and what got you to start this business and and what, what were you doing beforehand as well, please? Hi, guys. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, my name's Mark. I'm the uh, CEO and founder of uh, Quizbit, uh, the interactive trivia platform. Uh, we, we started like to stop people cheating in pub quizzes. Um, Pubs and clubs. Um, it was the fastest growing pub game in the UK for a number of years. Um, similar to Ben, really, I became a dad in 2015 and, and, and sold the business or sold my shares and my trademark and so on. So, Mark, you are breaking up. Mark, we can't hear you. So uh, while Mark sort out his uh, connection, let me move to Ismail. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, you uh, started Scoodle, uh, online learning platform. Uh, would you like to uh, give us a quick introduction about you, uh, what 
got you to start this. Uh, and uh, yes, please. Uh. Sure. Um, just as a quick overview, um, Scooter is a platform that's aiming to create educator superstars. So the way that it works is um, an educator would sign up and create a profile and then kind of brand themselves. They'd share answers, learning resources, videos, things like that. And if students and parents really like what they see, they can either book lessons with these teachers or subscribe to some of their premium content. You can almost imagine it as like a Patreon for the education world. Um, the idea actually first came about um, out of university a, a good few years ago now. I didn't take out a student loan to pay for my first um, degree. I instead built uh, kind of short courses and classes teaching economics. And I remember you know, the first class that I set up was really difficult to get up and running because I was just this kid that said that they could teach something. Nobody knew who I was. I think maybe two or three kids turned up initially. But as things began to grow and, you know, my former school teachers would tell their classes about it, there came a point where, yes, people needed help with economics, but they'd also sign up to classes because, you know, it was me delivering them. And this kind of notion of micro fame in education has existed, like, forever. So the best example that comes to mind is, you know, when I ask anybody to think about their favorite teachers, it's always smile in the face and, you know, all the kids love that teacher and the parents love that teacher and all of that stuff. But that usually existed within, at least in the UK, you know, a three-mile radius. Beyond that, it's even the best teacher in the world, but nobody would know about it. And that's kind of what we're trying to make a change for in school. So these great educators, you know, by icon is trying to create the Kim Kardashians of, of education. Like, how do you get these superstars with millions of followers where one day, you know, institutions are going to want to partner with them. You know, it's about individual recognition in education, not just institutional recognition. Um, and in terms of kind of traction and kind of fundraising so far, um, we're now helping about 60,000 students every month. Uh, we raised uh, around $3 million from Google, um, Twitter's co-founder, Bizstone, and a few other European funds, kind of Tiny VC, IFC Ventures, and a couple of others as well. Uh Thank you very much, Smile. Mark, are you back or? Uh... I'm back. Yeah, sorry, I was talking to myself for quite some time, and I don't know where I got up to, man. Do, do you know where? I yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't remember either exactly uh, which point you was um, got in trouble with the uh, connection. Um, I think I think you yeah, were talking I'm about. Sorry. Yeah, I'm. Risky I think Mark. Sure. I think Mark. Sorry, I think Mark was about to tell us some salacious tales of loaded. Ah, right. That, yeah, you chose the best. I chose the best bit to leave. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I, I used to work for the the the, the men's magazines down in London. Um, apologies. I hope this doesn't cut out, but it should be okay. Yeah, and um, yeah, I came back to Yorkshire. Um, and as as Ben, really, I, I became a dad in 2015. Um, but but prior to that, I created a business called Rock and Roll Bingo. Uh, it was bingo with music instead of numbers, basically. Um, it grew into the fastest growing pub game in the UK. Um, it was a rather successful product, but a lot of fun was the main point. Um, uh, again, as I say, as, as Ben, when I became a dad in 2015, I got an offer for the business as such, um, sold the trademark, sold the business, um, and away you go, really. Um, the biggest problem then was that the hospitality industry that I've worked with for a long time uh, they had um, uh, decided that the, the, the next problem to solve was people cheating in pub quizzes. Can everyone still hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Oh, I do apologise, sorry. Um, yes, yeah, so the, the biggest problem was people were cheating in pub quizzes. Uh, we then set out to help solve that problem. We created a cloud-based interactive 
trivia platform where people could use their mobile phone to play along. Um, a very simple concept. Um, we've had over 40,000 quizzes played, uh, over half a million people have played to date, and we have both uh, B2B and B2C models. Um, the world went mad, obviously, in March of last year. Um, we also lost over 90% of our, our revenue um, in terms of the hospitality industry completely shut down. Um, but that did force us to, 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 to pivot and to change. And um, since then, we've done some really cool stuff. We've worked with Nintendo over in Canada um, doing their 35th anniversary. Uh, we've uh, done quizzes for Manchester United, uh, Barclays, Vodafone, various other things. We've worked with celebrities like Chris Tarrant, Connie Hook, Chris Kamara. Um, and we've just partnered with some, some really cool brands for lots of activity moving forward. Thank you very much. Yeah, so we, we've had to pivot, we've had to change, we've raised... Mark, you're breaking up again. Apologies. Um, I'm, I'm going to try... If you guys can, I'll see okay. if I'm going to... Okay. All right. So, um, thank you very much, Mark. Um, so, we'll now go into the second stage, which is to discuss the, the funding journey. Um, and, and really looking at, um, before you took any external investment, um, where were you at the company? Um, what sort of a funding strategy you came up with? Did you think about you know raising multiple rounds or were you thinking about just raising one round and moving on? Um, and how did you find the investors? Uh, so if you can share some of that, that would be great. So we'll start with Ben from your talk. Hey. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember. <laughs> so, sorry, Ben. Before we start, we are recording this. So, if you feel there's something confidential, please don't share that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I think I've only shared public information so far. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to remember. So, I re- we I exited um, at Seven Digital in around 2015, 2016. Um, we went public, and then I ha- I was locked in for a year. So I became chief strategy officer, which I now know means it's one of those strange job titles that kind of means you're not doing that much. <laughs> anyway, um, I was able to sell my shares and, and had kids around the same time as I mentioned earlier. And um, I think I think I self-funded, uh, I funded Yoto myself personally for a while. And then we started to range a bit of, um, we started to raise a little bit of angel money, friends and family and that kind of thing and um, used our SEIS and our, some of the EIS. And uh, that kept us going. Because we were doing hardware, it was quite a lot of expenses. Um, hardware is not cheap to, to produce. So um, we managed, we bootstrapped for quite some time, actually, about three or four years in the early days. And then we went on Kickstarter. So we launched our first product in December 2017 on Kickstarter. That was successful, raised $50,000, but... Um, that was really just pre-orders of the product. It was not funding for the business. So we carried on then raising a bit more angel money. And it wasn't until 2019 we raised our first proper VC round. Uh, yeah, any any questions on that? So um, we uh, obviously uh, are run D-Light, which is building crunch base for the UK. So, so based on what we got, we captured your December round. I think you raised about 2.5 million and then Reason around about 12 million. Um, but you took on, you know, it, it's good to hear that you bootstrap for some time. 
uh, I presume that help you to refine what you are building, what the strategy is. Um, you know, some of the things we've seen in the marketplace now is that companies are coming out and immediately trying to raise money without really understanding what the hell they're building. So it's really good to hear your story. Um, but but you said you, you took money from Paul McCartney. So, so did he come on at, at that angel round or came on late, late rounds? No, he came on, well, he came on right at the end of our angel. So just before we raised um, our seed round, he came on board. It's quite interesting, yeah. isn't it? I'm sort of picking up on Paul McCartney and ignoring all the other great investors here. <laughs> I suppose we all like celebrities sometimes. Um, Gareth, if I, uh, if I if I move to you, um, uh, obviously, um, uh, you took uh, you took some money, um, but you just raised the first round, is it, or did you have a round beforehand? No, this was the first round. Um, I, I guess similar to Ben, um, we I self-funded for a while. I think you know it wasn't my first time starting a company, and uh, one of the things I wanted you know was making sure of is that we had enough cash to last about eighteen months, at the very least, because it always takes longer than you think. Um, and so we, we, we had that, we were fine. Um, and then up towards the end of last year, uh, VC started approaching us. One of the things we did in, I think it was, I forget now, October or, or a month or so earlier, we attended Web Summit, this massive online, vir- well, normally it's, it's physical, but uh, online virtual um, event with lots of VC firms. But we weren't really actively seeking funding part of our client base is to sell our product to obviously private equity and uh, hedge funds, but also to venture capital. So we were actually out looking for clients, but uh, along with um, talking to them and all the work my co-founder was doing on the, on the marketing perspective, we, we got enough attention that VC firms started talking to us at the end of last year. Um, our particular problem is that, being as small as we are, most of the companies that we were talking to were massive in a in a way that they you know we would fail their due diligence, let alone being able for them to work with us. So a lot of the conversations initially were around if we were open to investment, um, and we didn't want that coming from a client. So having um, actual independent VC money uh, stood out as the best way of doing it, rather than growing organically slowly. Um, so we started those conversations in December last year, uh, and it became apparent that we could, you know, if you, I guess, to some extent, it's always true. If you if you have people or VC firms wanting to put money in, then money isn't the problem. You start, you need to start um, uh, getting the kind of people and investors and and so on that you want on board. So we we were fortunate enough to be able to find a VC firm that. Um, most of its members work within private equity and venture capital. So that was a whole network for us to explore um, in terms of sales opportunities. And we also managed to get some strategic investors in on board as well. Um, Tcon, who is, uh, who found parse.com and is well-known Silicon entrepreneur, um, kind of gave validity to our low code platform as he'd done part of that before in the mobile space. And Lauren Isovich is also the founder of one of our competitors in the private equity space. So we managed to get her on board as an investor and an advisor as well. 
Um, but that's, uh, that's where we, we got all that kind of closed in the last um, couple of months or so, and that was our initial seed round. Uh, thank you, Bert. So uh, it's quite interesting, Tikhon, uh, he's, uh, he ran, uh, he was part of Scribe. So I, yeah. I had a startup called eDocker. We competed with them, but we were too small compared to them. Um, but I had exit in 2015. So um, you also took money from Sidekick Partners. I don't know much of them. Are they a UK firm? Or? No, they're in New York. Uh, so the last five years before I started this, I was uh, I had a joint venture with an investment firm based out of New York. So I lived in New York. Um, Sidekick are in New York based VC, they're only just kind of um, making themselves visible, I guess, for the last four or so years prior, you couldn't find them, they found you. Um, and they're just getting to the point where they're starting to have a, a website that says nothing but their name, but at least they're visible. <laughs> Talk about startups, you've got self-investor uh, here. So um, yeah. just just looking at your product, obviously you um, your customers include uh, private equity, but is it mainly for the larger end and, and uh, presumably the small VC firms might um, might not be the ideal target customer for you then? A lot of our background and, and what we've been doing kind of um, sells for the large complex end of the market. So the current um, potential clients and, and the customers we're talking to and people on trials are all from yeah, large end of private equity, fund of funds, fund admin, um, VC, et cetera. Um, as we create more of a turnkey solution, then we'll be able to address like the lower end of the market. But I think right now, anyone we're talking to is, I think most of people are like 10 billion plus, but uh, a billion plus is kind of a minimum. Yeah. I can understand. I, I'm looking at ways to set up a, a site uh, fund for Texarate, but uh, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> it'll be way too small. Um, thank you so much, guys. Uh, if I may uh, move to... Sorry, I keep pressing the mute button by mistake. Um, would you mind uh, uh, sharing your funding story, please? Sorry, I, I think you muted when you said the name. I, I think it was me. Yeah, I... yeah, sorry. Sorry, it's my <clears throat> Sure. Um, so our, our first round of funding was a very small sum. Our, our background was not one where we had a network of you know previous exits or um, even kind of many years in industry experience where our friends and family were high net worth. But um, I think one thing that was very fortunate in our case was that the first job uh, that I had out of university was in marketing at Google. And one a pretty beneficial thing that came out of that was they started what was uh, what's now called as kind of the, the ex Google network or the Zoogler network, which is essentially helping people that have once worked at Google build companies or work for um, work for startups because that's what tends to happen a lot when people leave big tech they start uh, their own their own companies and their own startups. Um, so we pitched at that demo day, um, and that's where we raised our first kind of very very small uh, or the equivalent of a friends and family round of about one hundred fifty thousand. Uh, pounds or so. Um, in our case, we made the decision uh, not to bootstrap initially, predominantly because we weren't uh, from a wealthy enough background to actually be able to do that. Uh, we were working kind of part time in, in the backgrounds with myself and my co founders whilst uh, we had our full time commitments. But there came a point where you, you kind of have to decide if you want to make this thing real and to scale it to the level that you want it to be. 
you have to give it your role and give it your full time effort. And so I think that leap had to have happened. Um, and so what we did was we kind of set a rule of, you know, what's the minimum we need to be able to raise and what's the smallest amount of money that we can survive with uh, as, as a team of three people to be able to justify uh, going full time and actually building this out. Um, and we ended up raising from some really smart angels that I think ultimately were some of the most valuable bit of investment that we'd taken. And we raised from uh, a string of C-suite investors from Miniclip, which is a mobile games company. Uh, but the biggest thing that they added was because they were used to building consumer products, they put us in check when it came to things like, uh, you know, our approach to data, our approach to product building and, and uh, analyzing retention metrics and so on, um, which was um, incredibly valuable. Uh, and then from that point onwards, one thing led to another. And I think fundraising almost kind of the, the effects of good investors compound because good investors tend to attract other good investors. Uh, we then, because of your own uh, education, we uh, went to Oxford University's kind of program uh, for for startups, um, the Oxford Foundry, and that's how we ended up meeting uh, Biz Stone, the, the Twitter co-founder, who was a keynote speaker at uh, uh, one of the events there. And once he invested, things again began to, to pick up a little bit more because the brand recognition that good investors bring, I think there was a question of, you know, what is what is a good investor? And, and there are many types based on the needs of your company. Um, some could be purely capital, and if, if that's what you need, that's great. Um, and then there's a kind of another level where the signaling power of certain investors can be incredible, where you can almost quantify that if person X invests, the, the value of their investment is so much more than the amount of capital that uh, that they put in. So that was a very powerful thing. Um, and more recently, I think Google is a very similar type of thing where not only are they providing tremendous value and networks internally, but they are also in a position where the, the brand of Google carries weight in and of itself when it comes to speaking to other investors. It makes you more noticeable in terms of conversations and, and meetings. Um, and incidentally, actually, as we speak right now, we're actually raising an extension um, on the back of the previous raise just because we're in a, a pre-privileged position to, to be able to do so. So, Ismail, if, if you look at it, obviously you joined uh, Oxford uh, after it. So did you or one of your co-founders actually attend Oxford or what's, what's the relationship? Yeah, yeah. So the, the way that it works with that accelerated program is that um, either uh, one of the co-founders or core team members has to be affiliated with Oxford, which we have as well. Um, but this isn't kind of exclusive to that accelerated own. I think I'd say the same thing for any other valuable programs. I know Speedcamp has something amazing that they've got going, Techstars, um, Y Combinator, obviously one of the biggest names um, in the world. Uh, oftentimes, it's, it's a lot less about capital alone as an indicator of why you should be doing things like that, but it's the value of the network and the value of the brand that you, can, you, you may not necessarily be able to kind of put a dollar value on. Yeah, so obviously taking money from business, you know, great thing, right? So you spoke about the how good investors attract others, but in, in terms of his actual engagement, I presume he's, he's not able to commit much time um, and you'd be surprised. I think in um, in our experience, it's actually been one of our most responsive um, investors when it came to any kind of mail out or or need for support or assistance um, when it comes up. But I think generally, a, a a good investor is not one that is constantly on kind of your case or they founder to try and find out what's going on and what they can do and what they can change. But it's usually the reverse, where you know the, the founding team, the core team, you're going about your day building a business. But where you need support for any reason, um, you can rely on your investors to provide that support, whether it's introductions to other investors, supporting a specific product problem, introductions to, to press or hiring talent, 
um, it's, it's the, the key measure isn't how often you speak per se, but when you need support, um, are they there and available and ready to support you in a, a timely manner? And I think from our experience, at least, um, both with him and a lot of the other rest that we have, um, that's almost always the case. Okay, so, so obviously you went to, um, you worked at Google and probably Google knew what you were doing from the beginning, but they waited till the seed round reinvest. Is that because you, you didn't quite want to take their money or, or were they just waiting to see how you perform with the, the previous rounds? I mean, when I was at, at Google initially, Scoodle wasn't really a thing per se. It, it wouldn't have been something we called the startup. It was just, it was something that we worked on on, on the side uh, in evenings. It really was very much kind of a side project, if that. Um, but I think what what happened on the back of that was we were kind of still very closely connected with the X2 community. We, we took part in a lot of the events and had a lot of relationships from that. Um, and then one thing led to the other. And when it came to the kind of fundraising process, I'm, I'm sure that it, it played its part. Um, but I wouldn't say that it was uh, a decisive, indicative kind of component of um, of the funding. I mean, you, you tend to find that there are tons of people that raise from Google without any affiliation in advance. Um, so it, it was probably more nice to have than anything else. Uh, thank you very much, Smile. Um, if I move to Mark, uh, I hope uh, we're not going to have a little, you know, connection problems, but uh, fingers crossed. Mark, uh, you took uh, you raised a small round of seed investment uh, of about a quarter million. Um, do you mind uh, explaining that? And um, you're thinking, I, I don't know whether you raised a round before that. Um, it would be great. To, I mean, I understand Rob. Uh, you took money from Rob, who were one of the co-founders of FreeServe. I remember using FreeServe very, very many, many years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, firstly, I've got a better connection now, so hopefully I should be okay. Um, so feel free to shout at me if it doesn't come through. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it, it's similar. I suppose every every journey is different. But in terms of our, our funding journey, um, I was mentioning briefly when we were cutting out that you know I invented a, a game for the hospitality industry in the first instance, and I, I sold that game in 2015. I sold my shares and my trademark, and that allowed me to to bootstrap um, effectively what was into a problem that people were asking us to solve, and that was that people were cheating in public. Um, you know, there were some things out there in the education space that were doing very well, but we wanted to create a cloud-based interactive system that could be used to, to play in pub quizzes. What we decided at the time was, you know, do we go for investment or do we bootstrap this? Um, and also, do we then see if we can actually get the product out there and generate revenue with what we've got? Now, I'm a non-technical founder, um, and uh, doing something like that is not for the faint-hearted, um, if truth be told. But we were able to generate revenues. We were able to generate some monthly recurring revenues. Um, but we had an awful lot of problems and challenges along the way, as any tech startup would. Um, but we were able to, to, to get to a certain point where we could build a small team and we could move on. It was always apparent, however, that raising investment was always going to be the next stage, uh, and we had planned to do it. Uh, as I mentioned previously, when the pandemic hit as such, um, we lost 80% of our business overnight. And what we then had to do was to decide what we were going to do next. And, and one of those things was we had to decide to pivot, to move to the virtual quiz space, if you will. Um, and as I say, that, that led on to lots of exciting things with people like Nintendo and Barkers and so on and so forth. But one of the biggest challenges um, around that was that we had to scale it. Um, and scale, you know, building something is, is, is hard enough, but scaling it is, is, is very hard. 
But the other thing that we had to do is we then decided that it was the right time to raise and that we were going to go out there and pitch. One of the problems that we had was, you know, on the you know institutional investment is, is quite a strange creature. We were looking at VC investment. We were speaking to VCs. We've got friends in the space. But effectively, we were, we were almost at halfway house. You know, we were... We were a business that, that had revenues. We were generating revenues. Um, you know, we certainly had an idea and we were certainly building on what we were doing. But uh, companies like ours uh, tend to struggle negotiating um, with VCs in order to raise a, an investment and agree terms. Um, because we were making a small profit, we had lots of plans, but you get onto the subject of valuation, you get onto the subject of working with the people, and it's been touched on before by some of the guys up here that you know you need to find the right person to work with. Um, and you know, at one point we actually turned down VC investment, and it wasn't an arrogant thing um, to turn it down. It was purely that the relationship didn't feel right. Uh, it didn't feel right for us, um, and uh, and effectively we thought there would be another way of doing this. So we then um, continued with our our investment journey and managed to raise. Uh, two hundred fifty thousand pounds from angel investors, and as you quite rightly point out, Manu, um, with Rob as well as, as one of those investors. So it's great to have them on board. Um, thank you very much, Mark. Uh, yeah, this time it was very clear. Thank you so much. So I'll hand over the conversation to Stuart, and then I'll come back at the very end just to um, finish off the room. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thanks, Manoj. Yeah, so what we're going to do now is just follow the same sort of route going around and come back to you, Ben, and just understand a little bit more what that investment's going to be used for in terms of um, growing the business and going to market and sort of accelerating that aspect. And and yeah, it'd be interesting to understand from yourself, because obviously you're a blend of software, hardware play uh, in the childcare space as well. So I feel it's a B2C, B2B model, but yeah, it'd be just good to understand a little bit more context from yourself on that. Sure, I'll answer that last bit first. So we, we are pure B2C. Um, in fact, we... channel, And then after that, we're, in, we're now starting to go into retail like WH Smith is taking our product and Target in the US. Um, that actually side of the business is one really slow with COVID because all the retailers were shut, basically. Um, we are... We are we do sell to some schools, but we're not proactive in that. So I guess that would be the only B two B side of things. Use of proceeds, uh, marketing, definitely. We we're trying to build a, a big brand, so we're doing a lot of marketing. Um, team, we're building with hardware and software. We're doing hardware, software, and content and brand. So there's like four kind of pillars to the business. So they all need great teams, and we now have a team in the US, and that's extremely expensive. I can tell you. And also, we are investing heavily in content. We have a combination of licensed content, like things like Ruffalo and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Disney content. But we're also investing in our own content and, and with partners. So we just launched something with Lego, where we created some unique audio around Duplo for the young kids. Um, the idea is that the audio is like a soundtrack to play. So content requires a lot of investment. So we've got plenty of things to spend money on, basically. 
Yeah, most definitely. And, and I feel you're paying about the US there. So like, start getting salary bills over there and it hurts. Um, yeah, and the, the reason I, ask, I understand the B2C, I didn't know if you're going to go sort of a B2P type of white label model into some of the larger nurseries or institutional aspects as well, if that's something you explore, but you've gone down that route and there's, there's no traction there. Um, well, we, ours is, um, we don't do white label. Um, that, I'd never say never, but I really don't imagine we're going to go down that route because um, everything we do is so tightly intertwined with the whole overall experience of Yoto, which is right down to the community and the customer service and the and the hardware and the software. It's all very tightly integrated, a bit like a mini Apple in a way. So I, I can't imagine Apple would do a white label. So it doesn't seem to make sense. We are, but saying that, we are selling into schools and nurseries. We, we are. Uh, we're getting a lot of sales in there. And we just recently launched a program called Mindfulness Corners where we're donating over 200 Yoto players to schools and nurseries across the country to help kids with mental health and uh, the chill-out time for when they come back to school in September. Perfect, perfect. Um, what I'll do after this, um, I've worked with a partner in Burnley who provide well, the, the the largest childcare software provider in the UK. So I'll make an introduction to Chris yet. They're the CEO. I think there could be some affinity around that, most definitely. Uh, just really, thank you. Thank yeah, you. yeah, no problem. Definitely. I mean, they. <laughs> funny enough, through the sort of COVID period, went went through a pain a painful period, and now come out and accelerate and double the staff in the last two months and such. So they're definitely growing, and accelerating. The childcare sector is definitely back on track again, which is awesome. Um, and just one one final question in terms of the actual development of the audio itself and uh, moving down that road, do you use natural voice actors or are you going down any AI-type route to do auto-generated content? That's a great question. So um, in general, it's all humans. Um, we license some of the best recordings that the publishers, we work with all the major publishers, book publishers have. So there's Stephen Fry recordings and Kate Winslet and that kind of stuff. So really high quality, you know, well-engineered, great sound effects, great music, that kind of stuff. Um, but on the, I mean, it's incredible to see the progress of AI and voice. I was reading this morning on the BBC how um, voice cloning actors are doing voice cloning and it's becoming incredibly accurate. So I wouldn't rule that. I wouldn't rule that out in the future. But in saying that, it's what we found with, with kids especially, you need to have very expressive voices and funny voices and, you know, imitating characters and kind of stuff. And I'd probably be the last area where AI can, um, can, can succeed in voice, I would say. Yeah, I agree. And sorry, it wasn't a trick question. It's just I've been following the sort of audio creation space for the last 12 to 18 months with um, the acceleration around that. And yeah, there's definitely lots of good traction but still trying to get empathy and emotion into those voices that are created from text is really difficult audio book reading for adults yeah, there's yeah. A company um there's a company that i'm tracking called semantic i've met them a couple of times and they they were mostly working for the games industry and they've focused all their energy on trying to get yeah emotion trying to get anger and and sadness into voice and they've made some pretty good progress but it's a very tough problem um it will get solved i'm sure yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I agree. I think children are probably more receptive to, yeah, the natural voice and, like you say, the, the, the uh, understand it more. Perfect. Well, Ben, thank you very much for joining us again today and being so open. Uh, I'm now going to move over to yourself, Gareth. Pleasure. Thank you. That's perfect. And I'll do that introductions afterwards as well. I've got your details. Um, 
yeah, so Gareth, over to you, which is, uh, you're, you're a different beast in terms of uh, the market that you're going after and how you can grow your business um, and, and a lot more complex as well. So it'd be good to understand, again, how you're going to accelerate that base and what sort of the goals for the next 12 months with your your investment. Is it around growing the, the revenue? Or is it around, around growing the platform or is it a blend of both? Uh, yeah, no, it's it's around uh, accelerating our, our go-to-market and, and scaling everything. We um, spent a lot of time beforehand building out the product. We knew what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it, and we did that quickly. Um, so we weren't raising money for research and development or anything like that. We were raising money to sell to our clients, um, to implement those clients, and to support those clients. Um, and so really that's, uh, in two offices. I mean, we have people here in London, we have people in New York. Um, I agree with the, uh, the costs in, in the U S. Um, and then it's, uh, um, about scaling that really into three teams. So we've kind of put that in all into hires, uh, and it's into the sales team. It's into the development team for supporting, um, and selling to clients, and it's into the implementation team. So we're in uh, the you know uh, B2B kind of sales space, but it's also the enterprise sales process. So from initially chatting to a client, it can take probably on average nine months or, or around there before you actually get to uh, a sale. Um, so it's a long process, it's an expensive process, and it involves a lot of... Um, technical demonstrations, proof of concepts, RFPs, etc. Um, and uh, so the development team are there to support that and build out features uh, along with the roadmap we've got and the implementation team, once they become a client, are there to support um, implementing that product um, at, their, at the client, which can take anywhere from three, six, nine months uh, after that as well. Um, and so... That's what we're um, focusing on over the next uh, nine months, eighteen months, uh, with the with the investment is to is to scale all of that as quickly as we can. Yeah, that sounds a great plan, and yeah, yours definitely feels like it's a, a true enterprise sale. And, uh, yeah, it takes me back to my Sun and Oracle days where everything seems to you're trying to get it into that into that financial year so you can get recognised on the commission. <laughs> And yeah, and and it feels as well that you would definitely be a sort of a, a partner enabled type sale as well. And is that something you're explore? Don't remember not trying to sell myself, but is that something you've explored or have had success with, or just open to having those dialogues now in in that sector? No, absolutely. It's a very um, good point. Um, so within the private equity sector, we've partnered with um, most of the major consultancies. So that's like Steel British, Lion Point. Holland Mountain, ID Venture, et cetera. So we have um, partnerships with them where they're uh, either working on or are being trained on our product. Got a couple of them where we've got joint trial processes in place with uh, some of their clients. Um, we're also t- talking with some in the big force, EY, PwC, et cetera. Um, they have various areas um, that they can partner with us. Um, then that's within the, the private equity space, because I can say we have a private equity solution on our product. So we have partners that can do that, but we also have this platform. So we're also working with 
if you like, software or consultancy companies in other verticals and financial services to build out products on top of it. So we're working with an insurance um, company that's going to build like a policy administration system on top of the platforms that they can sell within that market. Um, equally, we want to go into things like syndicated loans, credit derivatives, etc. Um, and then uh, a third part, if you like, is the fact that we actually have a platform itself so we can sell that to large financial institutions that just want to build their own things on top of it with their internal IT teams. Um, so yeah, so partners is a very big part of what we're doing. Um, most of the legacy competitors you know, do all the implementations and everything themselves. Um, we focus on very much being a software company where we can partner with other firms that can implement and uh, build out on top of our system. Yeah, that's that's my preferred model, Gareth. I've got a couple of clients at the moment. So you provide the uh, the foundations, the building bricks in terms of the enterprise and, and a no code type, a low code type model, and then let others build the solutions on top and take it to market. And you can collect the, collect the revenue on their success at the same time. It just means that you can meet multiple market demands without having to build an engineering team constantly building products that you can't sell. So no, that's that's yeah. definitely a good strategy. Um, and yeah, Phil, you painted about New York when we uh, when we set data sift up there and we set up the first sales team in financial services. So look, we were looking at sort of yeah large mortgage numbers. I thought at the time for basic salary. So it's quite uh, yeah quite a fun time. <laughs> but again, thank you, Carol. Thanks for spending the time with us today. And uh, I'm now going to let you go and uh, mute and just have a bit of chill and move over to Ishmael and talk about Scoodle and just understand a little bit more about. Um, how you're going to go to market. And again, um, it feels like to me, just on the outside in, this is a very competitive space and you must be differentiating yourself from a lot of the other learning platforms and services around this. And just to understand how you're going to do that and grow the business using that, uh, that investment and what the strategy is for this year. Sure. Um, so as a kind of first response to the, the key differentiators for us, there are two that stand out. And the first is, we don't charge commission on lessons, um, which to my knowledge, we're the only platform to do that. And the reason we opted for that uh, by design is that uh, long-term retention tends to be a problem in these types of marketplaces. And when I say these types, I'm talking about, you know, a marketplace where you're connecting two sides together for relatively frequent interaction. So hairdressers, you know, are another type of example where, it's very easy to connect for the first time and then to have them just go offline and build things or sort things out for themselves. Um, and that makes it very challenging to, uh, to build something that's sustainable and, and you know, VC level returns in, in the long term. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second piece for us is content as a user acquisition path and uh, channel because this notion of educator branding puts us in a position where we have unique content that just doesn't exist elsewhere. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with the world of education and, and teachers, you know that they create tons of stuff that just exists on USB sticks or Google Drive folders or Dropbox or something like that. It just doesn't exist on the online world and it very much could and it could be a means of distribution and attention that I mean, teachers can get. So for us, those two are some of the biggest parts in terms of core product differentiators. Um, and then in terms of go-to-market, um, it was interesting, we did a bit of user research both internally and with some external partners to figure out how people find out about what educational services to use. Um, some are you know, somewhat intuitive, word of mouth is an obvious one. Uh, another is Google search tends to be a, a big path 
uh, where people find out about tutoring or educational tools for the first time. So those are two that we're pushing quite a bit. And then the third is school teachers, incidentally. So one of the biggest reasons why school kids would take a tutor for the first time is because it, it comes with a recommendation from uh, their school teachers. So in our case, uh, we're doing a lot of work with uh, schools over the next year uh, to deliver workshops and training uh, to teachers around entrepreneurship, getting uh, jobs in tech, things like that, uh, as a means of building a trusted brand uh, directly with the source that you know benefits the, the kids themselves. Yeah, and, and totally agree with you on, on all the points there. You've, you've definitely removed the friction with the two-sided marketplace from the fees aspect, but also uh, I've spent a long time in education. Um, my ex-wife runs, I think, about six schools now for uh, as a, an alternative education provider, um, and that's basically children that have challenges learning in mainstream school come to her because they like to do maths in the afternoon, not at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday when they've been told they're going to do maths. And you tend to find, yeah, teachers in general in those normal standard environments are just producing so much good content and different ways of learning that, you know, pupils um, enjoy it and, and learn quicker. But mainstream education, and particularly in the UK, sort of bound as in, in a factor-based system. If you come in and you do maths at 11 o'clock and you do this, and, and we can't go around that because we've got KPIs and metrics to hit. Um, and, yeah, definitely. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, you're hitting it on the spot around that aspect. And also just, again, around the component of, you know, trust model of the um, teachers and, and pro- proposing that out to the pupils as well. Um, just getting that, that network going without sort of doing too, too much ad spend is, is awesome because it's definitely a referral type model. Um, and just looking at the content on the site as well and the sort of the way it's brought across, it's just fun and engaging rather than just being standardised. Yeah, I think for us, at least, most importantly, it's, it's the teacher that you discover. Like, I, I think there, there are content platforms that exist where the thing that stands out is the content itself, which is fine. Um, I kind of probably do a parallel best with something like YouTube, not to say that, you know, we want to go to YouTube per se, but one of the great things about YouTube and Instagram and, and the social networks is very quickly you start to attach yourself to the names of people or to the brands of human beings. And, Education is very much a human thing uh, rather than, you know, this is a math resource that I love so much. And maybe the math resource is great, but uh, it's trying to shift away from resource being the be all end all. But the teachers, the human beings that are there, that's the person that you're subscribing to. That's the person that's giving you uh, value and then creating that ecosystem in in one place. And and I think the big thing about content is I think one of the biggest reasons teachers aren't putting this out there is because distribution is hard. You know, not everybody wants to build a YouTube uh, channel. You know, not everybody wants to create a TikTok profile. These are challenging things. that You're making your resources and going about your life. So with us at Scudo, the big thing is the teachers do not have to be the ones to figure out SEO. It's a complex thing to be able to do that at scale. Scudo can do all of that. Your, your task is to do what you do best, which is create good content and teach in the most effective way that you can and and Scoodle does the rest. Yeah, totally agree on that. I think you know they put it into the sort of school portal and fire and forget. They don't want to build that. So again, thanks thanks Ismail for spending the time with us today and giving um, insights into your journey. And uh, and you can have a little rest Pleasure. now for uh, four or five minutes. <laughs> I'm going to hop over to Mark now and listen a little bit more about Quizbit and uh, quizzes and what's this about cheating in the pub? Nobody does that, do they? Honestly. <laughs> 
No, no, no. It's um, yeah, it's quite a, a, a done thing to be honest with you. We we, we claim to have created the world's first ungoogleable quiz, as we like to call it. Well, there are other things out there. Um, I mean, the 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 reason that we've raised the investment uh, and the reason we move this forward is that during the pandemic and also, you know, even before then, there's lots of people out there that would schedule a quiz that would then invite their friends to that quiz and someone would get uh, a Zoom team set up or a team meeting set up over the computer, sit there with another device um, and play along in an interactive quiz. And, and there's millions of people that did that. What we're doing with Quizbit is we're bringing it all into one platform. Um, we're going to be able to play games with up to 100,000 people. We're going to work with some brands and, and various other people which have already got signed up to, so they can connect with their audience. But effectively, what, what we, we're creating not for wanting of using another platform to, to promote what we're doing, but I suppose a way of describing it would be, you know, a Netflix of quizzing, if you will. And um, you can go on, you can take part in a quiz that someone is hosting now, tomorrow, next week. You can build your own, you can schedule when you want that to be, and you can connect with your audience instantly. Um, there's now teachers that are using the platform, uh, corporate learning teams, and, um, uh, people using them as, as, as the, uh, around the, the dinner table to play them as, as, as a board game, if you will. But effectively, um, you know, a quiz is quite easy to explain. It's quite a globally accepted uh, format. And what we're doing is using that to connect people and making it rather fun, we hope. Yeah, most definitely. Having took part in a uh, sponsored sort of curry evening about four to six weeks ago that Andrew was on, who was unfortunately here today. We did a quiz. It was a disaster because um, it was questions being asked and people shouting over each other. It was just, oh, it was the end of the world. Um, yeah. But it, it's fun. But it was in the world. And yeah, we've definitely seen over the last 12 to 18 months sort of virtual pubs and groups where it's quizzes and bringing communities together to help with that. I think that's that's going to be a continued trend as well. It, it, it is as well. I think the community side of things as well. I mean, in terms of the model, the business model, you know, leveraging that by creating what we call player-led growth, which is effectively product-led growth, which is a term that I know is, you know, used by many SaaS you know, B2B companies, but everybody that plays Quizbit has a chance to go on and be the host of their own quiz show. Everybody that, that, that plays and takes part can take part in another one and so on and so forth and tell other people when the other one is. You know, we're tapping into genre-specific uh, events. We are working with celebrities and brands, and basically if someone's interested in something, they do tend to like to tell people that they've got a good knowledge of that subject. And also if someone's interested in learning more about that subject, doing that through Quizbit in a gamified way is actually quite a fun thing to do. We've created a speed-based uh, quizzing platform as well, so we've got some good data that can come out of the back of it. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, we do think the genie's out of the bottle in terms of you know people using this sort of kit to be able to connect, certainly. Yeah, definitely, Mark. I think you've sort of you've got the aspect where you get the data at the back end about that community. You can help use that to, to leverage revenue through sponsored components around that as well, multi multifaceted approach. But again, mm. thank, thanks for spending the time for us today and taking you through um, taking us through your journey. I'm now going to hand back to Manoj and just do um, closing notes. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Um, yes, yeah, amazing stories. Um, of the founders uh, who raised investment recently, chatting with us for about an hour. Uh, we heard about the founder journeys. Um, uh, most of you have set up the companies after having um, 
exits before, uh, bootstrapped, and and then start raising funding. And obviously, um, uh, one of the other one of the founders, or you know, straight uh, raised investment at the beginning. Uh, we talk about different approaches taken to raising investment, um, and and also uh, just finish off listening to the growth strategies adapted by the four for a few here. So thank you so much for taking an hour of your busy schedule. Uh, Mondays are uh, never easy, but we typically get a, a weekly newsletter out with uh, deals we captured during the previous week on Monday. So this is scheduled to ha- happen just after that. Um, I'm going to close the room. Uh, thank you so much and have a great uh, week ahead. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Bye.